Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family through their Facebook page, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I am Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? Doing very, very well. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing well. And for this episode, Lance, we have on a new friend, someone who's been out there in the ether. We've we've uh, seen her on Twitter and on her blog for a little while. Her blog is called Naptime Nancy. And you can check that out at naptimenancydrew.wordpress.com. She's also got a, a podcast that she just launched recently. And she joins us to talk about some missing person cases. Yeah, it was a really good conversation. We were really excited to talk to her because we do communicate with her uh, on some level over social media. And our good friend, Michelle Kazuba, uh, made the introduction, the formal introduction, and was really the catalyst to this interview. Naptime Nancy is working on the disappearance of Two Tran. And Two Tran was a information system management student at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. And on November 26, 1990, 
she simply disappeared from the face of the earth and there is very, very little information about her disappearance and about any investigation that has subsequently uh, happened uh, since then. And for more information on that, you can go to James Renner's website, philosophyofcrime.com, where Naptime Nancy uh, has an article on uh, Tutran. Yeah, also check out the Charlie Project. There's uh, there's some information there about her. Um, she was 24 years old when she went missing, 4'9", and only 90 pounds, so a very um, petite uh, young woman. She's an Asian female, brown hair, black eyes, and one of Tran's toes is missing. And another case that we talk about with Naptime Nancy, who gives her real name in the interview, how's that for a tease, um, the disappearance of naval officer Elaine Fay Lettinen is uh, is someone that she wrote about on her blog, NaptimeNancyDrew.wordpress. And this is a really fascinating case, Lance. I can't get over this. Uh, after we started talking about this, and we kind of didn't even plan for this. We were just talking about some cases that were fascinating to her. And one of the featured one is uh, this naval officer who, again, another situation where she just goes missing uh, out of the blue. She's seemingly a strong uh, female Navy officer. She was a sharpshooter. She was in... Um, she was in rifle academies, and this happened in 1976, so there's no real forensic evidence. There was no fingerprints except for one thumbprint at her house. Her her shopping bag was still on the counter, and you, you start to wonder what happened in the events leading up to— what happened in her life, the events leading up to this disappearance, because by all accounts, from what can be gathered, you know, it being so old, such, a, such an old case— there's there's really nothing that proved to be the the trigger for her to to disappear. She seemed to have enough of herself together to solve any problem that would have caused maybe somebody a little less uh, uh, capable to deal with. Yeah, it's a really perplexing mystery, Lance, and uh, I'm glad we had uh, nap time on to uh, to discuss it. I had not heard of it before, so I think you'll uh, you'll really enjoy hearing about these stories. Um, Nancy also uh, shares some personal stories of her past, so I think that's a real really important moment too. Yeah, I agree, Tim, on that because people ask citizen detectives a lot, like, why do they do what they do? Why do they look into cold cases? Why do they seek justice? And, you know, a lot of them love the idea of a mystery and solving the mystery. And with Nancy, it feels like an urge for her to make something right that is wrong. And I think that comes from her past and the, the significant moments that happened to her. Okay, Lance, and we're going to play the interview in just a moment, but we just want to let our lovely listeners know how much we appreciate them, and thank you so much for listening to us over the year. And uh, our entire catalog is back on the public feed, Lance, so it's no longer on Stitcher Premium. We do still do the creator's commentary for Stitcher Premium only, and uh, so there are actually up to 70 episodes. We just released another 10, so it's up to 70 creator's commentary episodes where we talk over the first 70 episodes of Missing More Murray. But again, the original catalog, episodes 1 through 60, are back on the public feed for free, for good. So check it out anywhere you like to listen to your podcasts. Oh, even episode 18 is back, Lance. Oh, the notorious missing episode 18. So if you're traveling over the holidays, whether by car or by plane, download those episodes, especially episode 18. Pop those earbuds in and you won't be disappointed. 
We promise. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. Have a great holiday season, and we'll be back next week. We are being joined now by a very special guest. She goes by Naptime Nancy Drew. What is going on, Naptime Nancy? Hey, guys. Um, Not a whole lot. I'm just excited to be a part of this episode. How did you get the name Naptime Nancy? And first, uh, allow me to thank you for taking time out of your day. I know you have a very busy schedule with all of the work that you do, which I guess is the ironic part of your name. I don't really see you. I don't imagine you taking a lot of naps. But um, yeah. No. How did you how did you think of this name? What's what's the origin story to uh, Naptime Nancy? So I basically my mom's stepfather uh, was a he had his DNA tested within the Golden State Killer case, um, which was a very scary time for our family. Yeah, um, because there was like a lot of different weird connections, which turns out there was a lot of suspects that had really weird coincidences to the case. Yep. But during that time, that's when my sleuthing, that's when I really started to get a lot better at it, I guess, and really get into true crime because I realized there's so many, there's so many bad guys out there. Um, I just was, you know, blissfully ignorant until that point. Um, But that is where I, I found the time in between being pregnant with a little toddler at the time to work on this stuff while he was napping and then it eventually got to be where they both were napping so i would uh, do my little nancy drew stuff while they were napping oh so it's not okay. you napping it's your kids napping exactly yeah uh, wow. well thanks for very... joining us today all my questions are answered <laughs> it's a very uh very functional <laughs> yeah. name i i love yeah. it it's yeah. uh yeah it, ma- it makes perfect sense when was your father's dna tested uh, for golden state killer so were you saying that he was once a person of interest in the Golden State Killer yes. case? Wow. Um, so he, it was my mom's stepfather, and he is basically, he's still even with my grandma to this day, but they're not, they don't have any connection to the family anymore. Um, but he was a very abusive, very um, kind of just fit the mold. He, um a lot of things we would find out things where he would people would threaten to go to the cops and then he would take a group of his friends and go beat them up before they could and you know just stuff um the locations and whatnot it just kind of got to be a lot of um coincidences so we figured you know let's just throw his name out there and see what happens you wow. your family did that yeah wow. yeah i actually my mom like was so scared of the guy that she never even thought about the fact that he could have hurt other people, um, which I still believe that he has hurt other people. It just wasn't those cases. Um, so hopefully with familial DNA, um, you know, if he did commit any crimes, they'll be he'll be caught eventually. Wow. So did you do uh, the Jed match and opt in? I just ordered um, my 23andMe ah. uh, DNA stuff. So I'm going to submit that. But we really don't share any DNA right. um, aside from like a, um, I have a half aunt, I guess. So if she gets a hit of minute one, I don't know how 
how any of that really works. Um, yeah. But we can All only right. hope. <laughs> well, that's that's fascinating. Um, and uh, and as we were um, sort of introducing ourselves to you via email, and I want to give a shout out and a thanks to Michelle for making the connection. So you launched a blog and you also launched a podcast recently. And can you tell us a little bit about those projects? So, yeah, um, I actually I had started out with a blog. Um, well, I started out basically like a you know, promoting other people's podcasts and blogs and kind of like a true crime cheerleader, if you will, um, just advocating for cold cases on Twitter and then decided to start a blog, um, which is the nap time Nancy drew on WordPress there. Um, and then I also did some work for James Renner as well on his philosophy of crime site. Yeah. Um, that blog of the, a case a day. Uh, we had been working on that. Um, and that's where this, this case actually came from originally is one I, I chose for that blog. Um, but, and then decided about May, no March of this year, um, to just go for it and put a podcast out there. And it's been slow going because it's really hard to, um, it turns out, you know, podcasting is very hard work. What? No, um, no, it's not. No, it's they <laughs> basically, on. they, they cut you a blank check and they say, they say, take your time. And the episodes produce themselves. Yep. Exactly. It's yeah. Editing is my, my worst enemy. So that's my like most tedious part of the whole thing. It slows me down. So that's my goal is to like, get to where I don't have to edit it anymore. I can just send it off and, you know, produce way more episodes. Yeah. So, you, yeah, you, you mentioned a case. What uh, what case are we talking about? So we are talking about um, 24-year-old Tu Tran. Um, her full name was Tu T. Cam Tran. Um, and she was a student at University of Maryland in Baltimore County. Um, she disappeared on November 28th, which was which was a Wednesday in 1990. Um, kind of just went to class that evening and then played or visited some friends in the game room of the university center and then was never seen again. Her car was still in the parking lot and they just basically, as far as I can see, there was very little info. The kind of campus police took over the investigation and then doesn't really feel like there's been any development since. This is a uh, case of pretty much gone in thin air. That's how it feels like literally she walks out of a pretty populated um, place. Right. I'm I'm assuming there were uh, more than a handful of people in this location before she walked out to her car. Yeah, I mean, um, I know that there were witnesses who saw her in the game room. Um, Like, at least one was referenced in the article itself, but there was no names given. Um, But it doesn't say, you know, if it was on her way to her car or if she, you know, actually got to her car and kind of had a struggle in the parking lot. She was really, she was four foot nine and 90 pounds, so... It's hard to imagine there would be much of a struggle, unfortunately. 
Yeah. And she got into her car and her car has never been seen either. They have no um they have no evidence that she actually even was able to get into her car. Oh, so they have um, the car. The car is accounted for. Yes, the car is accounted for. Um no idea where it's currently at where they would, you know, store that type of evidence, but um it would from what I've seen on Google Earth, um, those two buildings, the Fine Arts Center where she had her last class that wrapped up around 6.45 p.m., um, and then the University Center, they were kind of right next to each other. Um, so it would have been the most convenient to be in the parking lot right behind there. It was a pretty large area. Um, I don't know for a fact that she was in that parking lot, um, but... That was right in front of the, you know, UMBC police uh, building itself. So I found that interesting, you know, that if that happened there, that it would have happened right in front of that building, unfortunately. Yeah, that's perplexing. So she never even made it to her car from the building, though her car was parked in the parking lot. She lived off campus with her brother. And Yes, her, in her Lanham. Bro- uh, yeah. Right. Pretty close by. It's about 25 miles away. Um, I believe, yeah, it's a different county as well. Do you happen to know if the car was locked when they found it? I don't, actually. Um, that is, there's so little information. I just applied for a, a FOIA through them and just heard back probably, oh, a half hour ago from oh. them. Um, and they said, sure, we'll get this going for you. It'll be about $5,000. Oh, like, no. Ah, well, with all that cool. podcasting money, that's fine, right? That's just a drop <laughs> yeah. in the bucket. I'm just rolling in the dough over here. Wait, Obviously. wait, wait. $5,000 for what? <laughs> she bought the uh, they car. Said, <laughs> They're going to give her I the mean, car. I mean, I asked for Seriously. any and all documents of, you know, pertaining to the case and assuming there wasn't too much there because there's just been so little info. And they said, well, we have thousands of pages so really? if you want to do that five thousand bucks oh so. my god well i guess there's information but maybe because it's yeah. a uh missing person case there's a lot of um a lot of like reports that don't lead anywhere is my guess yeah well and i mean uh that's i'm glad that they're not that you know every nonprofit is made of money but at least there are other um foundations out there that could hopefully you know help research this case um such as you know private investigations for the missing if hopefully you know something good comes out of this and they're able to get some answers yeah yeah absolutely that's what the funding is there for to provide uh resources uh you know including documents that are in a cold case that need a little bit of funding to release um I'm yeah. wondering if those in the uh case files that you requested if they have any security camera footage because you said that this this might have happened close to campus uh the campus police station yeah yeah so it would have been um kind of like I would say on the kitty corner um, from that parking lot, it would all have been visible. Um, There's two lots. There's one big one, and then there was a smaller lot just behind there, but it would have been right in front of the police building. So it's it's so hard to say even where her car was because they just are kind of holding all those cards close to their 
their chest there. Oh, okay. So we don't even know where her car was parked? No, I've oh. been trying to like scour old newspaper articles and I can only come up with even one article on her case. Um, they don't, you know, not even the brother's names mentioned. Um, so I've been trying. I think I might have found the family, but I haven't reached out or anything like that because I, especially around the holidays, I would never want to try and bring up that kind of pain, you know. Yeah, I, this happened the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I'm assuming. Uh, so it was, it was the week after Thanksgiving oh, okay. um, in 1990. I looked; it was the 22nd was Thanksgiving that year. Okay, yeah. So it's got to be a sensitive time for the family, obviously. Uh, why do yeah. you, Why do you think it hasn't gotten any attention? And uh, why do you think that we don't even know what the brother's name is? Does that strike you as uh, strange at all? That the family's not putting themselves out there a little more to try to make some, uh, you know, movement with this? Um, you know, I am not for certain if there was like a uh, possibly a miscommunication or if they needed a, a translator, per, perhaps. I don't know if, you know, I haven't even really seen quotes from the brother, so I don't know if um, they had... All, you know, all been born in the U.S. or if they all immigrated from Vietnam. Um, Michelle had mentioned something about her being a foreign exchange student, but I hadn't seen anything on my end uh, about that. So I'm I'm really curious if that was true or not, if she, you know, just stayed with her brother there and her family was over in Vietnam still. Wow. So So then her brother reported her missing when she failed to return home. And was it yes. that was it that night, that Wednesday night? Um, so that was the last time she was seen. And then they said that they reported it and did a search immediately. So I if she went missing at 830, I would assume it more than likely was the next day on the 29th. But they said that they did a search on the entire campus, uh, the 500 acres of the campus. And nothing was found. Um, so, unfortunately, there's just not much else to go on there. Um, however, I've, I've been searching for unidentified persons in Maryland and have come across a couple that I may just turn in just to, just to double check, um, cross them off the list, if anything. So you were kind of cross-referencing other um other missing person cases that were possibly on college campuses? Yeah. And also um, I noticed that there was one uh, well-known murder case that happened in the next County over in March of 1989. Uh, Tracy Kirkpatrick was a 17 year old that was murdered in the sports uh, retail store that she worked in Um and she was found by a security guard. Uh, and later on, there was a guy that called into some radio show and like confessed to her murder and claimed his name was Don. Um, and then it turns out that was the first name of the security guard. So we don't know for sure. No one's ever been named as a primary suspect. But I found that interesting just in the sense that I was like, okay. I wonder 
who were the security guards at, you know, UMBC uh, that night or, you know, anyone on duty or just stuff like that. That was where my mind started to wander like, hmm, I wonder if that guy transferred or if anyone else by chance, you know, may have seen her all by herself out there. But it could have been, you know, it really could have been anyone. That's the frustrating part. How long had she been going to the University of Maryland? So she was a senior. So I, I'm i not sure if she spent her entire time there or if she just, if she transferred. But she was, you know, she had her whole future ahead of her. That's what's really tragic about this whole thing. So I, I got here that there's about 40,000 students at the University of Maryland? Yeah, it's a... It's a pretty big campus, and they have two different campuses, I believe. Um, yeah, uh, so hers was the the Baltimore County, um, which I am, I got to admit, I am not familiar with, like, the Baltimore and Maryland area. Um, I'm more familiar with a lot of West Coast places. I've been in New York, um, but really, or have family in New York, but as far as, you know, the East Coast, I'm pretty novice thus far. Well, it seems like she was going about her, a routine that night when when her class uh, when her class wrapped up at a, at a certain time. I think we have here 645. She walked to the uh, university center. Did that does this strike you as, as something that she would do as a routine? Meaning if someone knew what her, her routine was, they would know where she would be. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, there were, you think about like different things that you would do as a college kid. I, I did a lot of the similar things after my classes, I would go to certain buildings and whatnot that very well could be what she did um, as a normal activity was go to that game room after, after that class at the art center. I think there's still much to learn about two's disappearance, but there were, Unfortunately, a few different unidentified um, remains that were, you know, might be worthy of turning in um, within like 13 miles of the campus. I found a couple of them uh, that maybe haven't been, you know, uh, who's to say? I, I really hope that she is still alive, but the fact that she didn't make it to her car uh, and she's a senior, you know, she had her, her whole bright future ahead. I just am a little concerned that there was, or a lot concerned, I should say, that there was some foul play involved, uh, despite what the spokesperson for the campus said. She's a beautiful girl, but we don't think any foul play is involved. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I I don't know. I just don't personally buy that. To me, it just seems completely random, or she ran away. Um, but m- maybe was abducted in the parking lot or something like that. But it's just it's just so hard because there's no information. There's nothing. The, I mean, be interesting to see what were in those files. Um, but that's a pretty penny. But but I would have to imagine that there's a lot of information if they're if they're asking for five thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, you were probably right when you said that there's like a lot of false leads or yeah. like just a lot of accounts. They probably interviewed hundreds of people. Hopefully, they interviewed hundreds of people on campus. But I mean, I just, I keep thinking that there's a reason why she went missing. So I'm thinking like random is not standing out to me. 
right now. But again, like there's so little info. Yeah. She yeah, and she could could have been, you know, stalked for a while and and hadn't realized that or you know, or a friend just happened to notice that she was by herself or not a friend, but you know what I mean. Yeah, um, someone in, someone that on the college campus. Yeah. I, yeah. That, that's where my head goes. My one thing that, you know, that whole security guard angle um not necessarily saying even that the one attached to the whole Tracy Kirkpatrick murder in 1989. Um, I tend to think potentially, you know, maybe uh, they should be looking at all angles, you know, both students and those who were in security on campus and just kind of, you know, no stone left unturned. Um, I tend to say that because, um, my own college experience, um, I, I was sexually assaulted in college and the guy turned out to be, he wound up going on to become a police officer. So I, I tend to have a little bit of that in the back of my mind. Not that I don't trust all police because I really do have a, a great deal of respect for law enforcement. Um, but I know that there are some that wind up like Joseph D'Angelo, for example, yeah, uh, the Golden State Killer. So, okay, so you you talked about your um, sexual assault on your podcast. Do you mind? I did. Yeah. Do you want to talk yeah. a little bit about it now? Um, you know, I just decided to share the story with everyone because. I know that there's so many women like me that this has happened to where you blame yourself that, or we tend to blame ourselves that we were, you know, too intoxicated and thus it was our fault that this happened to us and, or compared, like I, I did, I compared my mom's trauma to my own um, from her childhood and thought, Oh, she had it way worse. I'm just, you know, I'm just complaining and I'm not going to deal with my own PTSD and it caught up to me, you know, and it affected me both mentally and physically. Um, and so I wanted to share that with people because I kept it from my parents for 16 years and just, just in October told them and wish I wouldn't have um, waited so long. Uh, so it was just, something I wanted to share with people and it's been really bittersweet to hear how many people from, I mean, everything from my high school to college to Twitter, uh, you know, to any listeners, they've come forward and told me their own um, sexual assault story. And it's, it's like comforting to know, you know, there's other people out there that understand you, but it's also really hurtful to hear just how many people out there who have experienced the same thing. And you're just talking about the people that have come forward because of something that you put out there. Well, uh, yes. Um, and that was, that was my main goal was to go, okay, you know, um, obviously there's, I, I know I'm not the only one that's pushed this aside and tried to just pretend everything's fine. Um, so it was like, if I could get one person to say, Hey, maybe I should be taking better care of 
my mental health and looking into my PTSD and why I do the things I do, um, I noticed that like I have a binge eating disorder that stemmed from my sexual assault. So now I'm kind of addressing that and redirecting healthy habits. And I'm, I'm optimistic about the future now where I definitely was kind of more pessimistic before, I should say. Do you think that the binge eating problem was something that you were aware of being a direct result uh, in the past? Or is that something that you just recently discovered? That was something I uh, just recently dis- discovered, probably probably like a month before I told my parents about my own sexual assault. Everything just kind of came, you know, came about. And I got inspired by Netflix's um, Unbelievable, that story of the oh, yeah. girl that, yeah. Um, so basically... I just felt like, okay, I need to get this out there because I see, you know, in the the show, people not, uh, law enforcement not believing Marie, the character. And I thought, my my rapist is in law enforcement right now. What if he's out there trying to belittle someone that's, you know, crying about their own sexual assault to him? Um, so it just, it really bothered me. And I, I just wanted to share the story because, Statue of limitations is up. I can't go after the guy, but I can talk about the story, you know, because it's my own. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Yeah. Now, do you do you ever name the person directly? I do not. Um, more so. I more so just kind of make fun of him a little bit there because. Mm. Is it a, is it for uh, legal purposes that you don't name him? Or? It is, yeah. Um, I found out when I found out he was a police officer. Um, I wound up trying to Google him, and it turned out he had threatened other people, like while off duty, like had road rage incidents, and it it scared me. Um, and legally, you know, I can't really charge him anyhow. Uh, so I just decided to to not even go there with putting his name out there. But people in my college have, you know, figured that out. Um, even the roommates I discuss in the episode have come forward and said, I wish I would have known. I feel terrible. And mm. I mean, of course, it's not their fault. You know, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't even think, you know, I blamed myself at the time. So wow. it just... It was, um, it felt really good to get that out there, um, just in case it helps anyone else. What do you make of these statute of limitations running out on um, someone, like running out on a rape charge? If I were to be blunt and perfectly honest, I think it's total bullshit. I think that statute of limitations, you know, being the, or uh, the abbreviations SOL, so... I mean, yep. shit out of luck, SOL. I I'm more of um, I I'm more of a believer that sexual pre- predators are protected rather than the victims themselves. Yeah. Um, when it comes to statute of limitations. Yeah, and it's I don't know if it's irony or not, but I always found it uh, a bit ironic that the the one crime or one of the crimes that can be perpetrated on somebody is 
this thing that causes the person who had the crime committed to them be fearful and blame themselves and go through this process that takes years. But oh, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna apply a limitation on this crime. So when the person finally has the courage and the support to come out, up oh, too late. Like you went through the whole process, but you know, the internal process, but it's just too late legally. Oh yeah. Whoever came up with the statute of limitations laws, which I believe it was the Greek. Um but, always the Greek. Um, yeah, right. Um uh, I just mean in modern day still implementing statute of limitations is just ridiculous because now we know the effects and the long-term effects of PTSD and how it can affect, you know, us mentally and physically and cause people to just bottle that up until it's too late. Um, You know, when you finally get mad enough, you're like, Oh, well shit. Okay. Now I can't charge you. Yeah. And that's really terrifying uh, because especially because this guy's a cop now. That's um that that is yeah. definitely something that should not be protected by statute of limitations his uh his identity or the crimes he committed. I know it's pretty awful. It's like the worst thing I can think of is him actually trying to sue me for you know defamation right. of character, um and you know gaslight that oh that didn't really happen to you oh, yeah it did, um so I just kind of. It, it's it doesn't matter to me if no one else believes me now that I've told my parents and you know everyone I love has my back and supports me so he can gaslight all he wants um but I just don't want to risk any of those legal factors unfortunately because the law hasn't proven to be on the side of of sexual assault survivors yeah was he a police officer when it happened no, he wasn't. He was a a football player at uh, Western Oregon University. No so, kidding. So, what about your decision to air this in uh, in your podcast episodes? Was that did, did that end up being uh, quite therapeutic for you? It really, it really was. Um, I have had like I feel like there's just this huge weight off my shoulder. Um, it was really, uh, it was hard. I didn't expect to be so emotional hearing other people's stories. uh, You know, Um, I didn't expect so many people to open up to me um, and message me and say, Hey, this is what happened to me. And I went through the same types of things. And, you know, um, that was hard to hear. I was so glad that they got that off their chest, but it just made me like, Oh my God, there's so many of us. This is crazy. You know? Um, So it's hard to, get past some of that anger i actually because of like the binge eating stuff um i have to figure out a way to feel safe because it's it sounds sounds weird but it's like a lot of people use food as like that safety net even though it does nothing to keep you safe but your mind just thinks okay this will keep people from trying to you know hit on me or whatever so it's just, it's all kind of backwards. Yeah, that's a that's a battle. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's good that you put that out there and it was cathartic for you. And it's great that you've received such support. And I want to encourage that for, for everybody if, if they have gone through something like that. I'm sure uh, you'd be open to 
hearing more stories and, and trying to help oh, people. Oh, absolutely. I don't mean to discourage anyone from sharing their story because the more of us that actually talk about it, like the more outrage that there is that this is happening and being swept under the rug, the better chance something is going to eventually be done. So I'm just, I'm really glad and thankful that you guys even brought this up. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking about it. I think it's important. And uh, I just happened to notice on your blog here and uh, in your podcast, you you covered a, a different missing persons case, disappearance of a naval officer named Elaine. Uh, I'm not even going to attempt the last name. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about Elaine? I think, I think it's um, Lettinen is how I've been pronouncing it, but I don't know if the, right. I'm correct or not. But her name was Elaine Faye Lettinen, um, and she was a naval officer um, at the at Mare Island in Vallejo, California. Um, she was like a record sharpshooter, like at standing just barely five foot. Um, and she was one of the first women to be a part of the Navy's rifle team. Um, and so it was a huge deal. And she just up and vanished from her home. Um, she's kind of like, her case is um, has as many rabbit holes as the Maura Murray case does when it comes to her disappearance. It is so frustrating and there's so many different ways this could have gone where people think, well, she was, she had no family. She's a, you know, record sharpshooter. She's, you know, obviously has to be a spy, but there again, she had a book, uh, the Navy regulation book open to court martial um, and people think, you know, maybe there was foul play involved and someone that she was going to turn in within her workplace, you know, maybe something happened and everyone's just kind of keeping quiet about it. But it's, it's one of those cases where I've heard former FBI, former Navy people say more than likely something bad happened. Are we ever going to figure out what happened? If any, Is anyone really going to ever come forward? It's doubtful. And so it's just really frustrating to to hear that. Yeah. And this is a, a case from 1976 when she went missing. Yes. So, yeah, that's that's quite a bit of time. That's a lot longer than the cases we typically cover here. Yeah. And her, I mean, if we wound up getting enough people to actually talk about the case, it would probably be its own podcast, just like, you know, Missing Maura Murray. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, uh, this is incredible. The, this woman does not strike me just from doing this like cursory type uh, search as we're speaking, but this woman doesn't strike me as someone who is uh, abducted very easily. Well, no. And what was really odd to me was the fact that she's this record sharpshooter and there were no weapons found in her home. Um, her groceries were still on the kitchen counter. Um, you know, one window was open. It's just, uh, but they say there's no sign of a struggle. And I'm like, well, she was five foot and like 115 pounds maybe. So even though she's... You know, I, if there was no weapons found in the home, which I find hard to believe, but um, the the house was actually vacant 
for 10 years um, and they didn't even start the investigation in her home until like, I want to say August of 1976 um, because they just assumed she went AWOL. And so anyone that may have abducted her easily could have broken back in and, you know, figured other stuff out um, just um, or, you know, hid other valuable pieces of evidence. Who knows? Um, it's just it's just a really frustrating case. Well, she she was a member of the San Diego sharpshooting U.S. Navy uh, rifle team, and, and she didn't even have a single rifle in her home. Not one single rifle. Are, um, are, so I just, yeah. Is your feeling that someone had broken in, taken taken the weapons away to before they abducted her? I I mean, I find it odd, especially. I find it odd that there were no weapons, especially given the fact that there were uh, friends of hers that she worked with that said that they felt that her behavior when they knocked on her door. And they were trying to surprise her for her birthday. And she was seemed very concerned, like, who is it? You know, and wouldn't until they revealed themselves, she wasn't going to open the door. And I mean, granted, she she lived alone, but still, it's like it just doesn't strike me when you live alone like that and you are a sharpshooter. I would have a weapon personally, um, but I, I don't know. Everybody's different, I suppose. Was there any indication that she had a mental uh, disability or maybe she was slipping into some sort of um, psychosis? I hadn't seen any indication of that. However, um, she did have her mom allegedly committed suicide like the month before that. Um, She took a bunch of sleeping pills and then her um, boyfriend at the time tried to claim that um, Elaine was a very selfish person. I'm guessing he tried to get in on some of her estate, but they weren't married. And Elaine was like, yeah, no. And, uh, but I just, I found it weird that there were people trying to talk badly about her, um, which was the boyfriend. And then one coworker said that she was emotional or something like that. Um, those, Those were the only things that I noticed. Everybody else said, no, it's fine. She was, you know, she was smart. She was great to work with, kept to herself. That's Elaine's boyfriend you're talking about, not her mom's boyfriend said that? Uh, it was her mom's um, boyfriend. Oh, okay. So it makes me wonder, you know, did she kill herself or, yeah. you know. I would say that's, that's a bit suspicious. It is, and it's so hard to find anything on her mom's death itself. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances surrounding Elaine's disappearance? So she was last seen, I want to say it was June 14th, which was a Monday. um, And she went to work. Um, The only thing they said she did differently was she called her lawyer because she wanted to update her will more than likely because of, you know, removing her mom from being a beneficiary and whatnot. Um, But she made the appointment, but she, you know, it was for a later date. Um, and then she went home and she was watering her shrubs outside. And the next door neighbor girl and her friend rode by on their bikes and tried to say hello. And she just, um, kind of either was spacing and didn't hear them or didn't give them the time of day. 
to where the other friend was like, are you sure you even know her? Cause she doesn't seem to want to even talk to you. Yeah. Um, which the girl's father worked with Elaine um, and then transferred after that. I'm not saying there's anything, you know, out of the ordinary there, but there were a lot of people in that neighborhood that, that were either retired Navy or current. So it just, it's all really um, frustrating because you can see right in the backyard where the three windows were. One of them was open. I mean, I've driven by with my husband past her house and just to kind of put eyes on it. And it's, I mean, it would be so easy to just hop that fence. It's like maybe a four foot fence. Was there any indication that Elaine was gay? You know, I, I tend to wonder myself. She was very, um, apparently she was very religious. Um, she was a Catholic. That was kind of my first thought that perhaps that she was, I guess she had an ex-boyfriend and that January of that year was like the last date that anyone had said she'd been on. But um, I kind of wonder about the woman that talked badly of her and said she was overly emotional and stuff that she worked with. Sometimes I'm like, oh, did she come on to her? Did they have a relationship or well, is this well, completely gee, unrelated? Gee, her mom just died. She's emotional. <laughs> she She's thinking yeah, about right? changing okay. her will. Gee, I wonder why. That seems so suspicious. No, it doesn't. It just seems like a lot was going on in her life, and it made her reevaluate her future. The fact that she kept her, she made an appointment to change her will, but never actually met that appointment, to me, says that she didn't. She didn't run away. There was nothing suspicious about uh, her uh, doing something with her will. It was just sort of um, life changing, and she probably realized life is a little more precious than she had thought before her mom died. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, I have no idea what, you know, whether or not she was gay or not, but it really, no one should be talking badly about someone who went missing. You know what I mean? I mean, not, I don't know. I'm just saying that, yeah, she was really emotional. Like what? I, it just does seem like obviously she was going to be emotional after her mom died. Yeah. Um, You're absolutely right. What's the deal with the fingerprints or uh, no fingerprints? Supposedly, there's one like thumb print on the counter and no other prints. That's normal. And yeah, right. Uh, no one cleans that up. Uh, they had her uniform was all ready to go. Her lunch was in the fridge. You know, her car was in the driveway or in the garage itself, and so was her bike. Um, so I, it makes me wonder, like, would she, if she packed her lunch, would she have left the groceries on the counter if she had gone to the store that night or did it happen in the morning? Uh, there was a car, allegedly there's a car that came by around 8.30 PM and, uh, it was like a dark blue sedan, uh, some neighbor had seen, but I'm kind of wondering what neighbor saw the car? Was there more than one neighbor that saw this car? Or is this like a red herring type thing? Yeah, completely. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Wow. Well, um, <laughs> yeah. So, so she got home with the groceries, put them on the counter, didn't with, with her thumb, right? And and didn't put them <laughs> in the refrigerator. Is that that accurate? It's yeah. And I don't know if they were 
perishable groceries. I actually, um, I talked to two different police officers at or detectives at, at Napa police. And one of them said, you know, I can't talk to you about anything. And I was like, okay, you know, understandable. And the other one was like, I said, I'm really curious about the groceries on the counter. And he's like, well, what groceries on the counter? I don't remember anything about that. Like, then you clearly haven't looked at the case in a while because that is a weird thing, you know, and it might indicate like if there was a receipt, for example, was she at the store that morning? Was she there that night? It gives you a a time frame. Right. And no, no break in or anything like that. No, they said that. um, So. The, well, the window was open. One of the back windows, I uh, believe it was a bedroom window, um, that was open. It was a hot evening. It was like 75 degrees in, uh, for the low that night. Wow. Um, so, I mean, that wasn't too uncommon in 1976 until, you know, like the Golden State Killer came along and people started locking their windows and doors. Um, but... Uh, the garage door, I mean, going into the garage, that was unlocked. But the side garage door, like in the garage going outside the home, was locked. Wow. Any uh, family member or um, any friend that is uh, still with us and willing to speak with you? I have tried um, to seek people out this far. Um, and I know, I don't think, I haven't been able to come across anyone that's been willing to speak that actually worked with her. They've written me and said, Oh, I played cards with her at Skaggs Island. She used to go down there and, you know, have some drinks with us, but I tried talking to her and then she kind of clammed up, you know, and, and stopped talking. And I was like, okay, well, what do you, what do you think her style was casually? Cause that might help with unidentified persons or whatever. And they never wrote me back. So that was frustrating. Oh, this um, is really. I'm. Um, I just saw this part. Of, I apologize if you said this already and it went past me. They found the thumbprint, but they couldn't confirm whether it was Elaine's because the Navy didn't have any record of her fingerprints because they were allegedly lost. Yeah, well, that's um, fishy. And that <laughs> there's so many frustrating details in here. Um, that uh, is definitely worth mentioning that. The Navy does not have a record, supposedly, of her her fingerprints. However, uh, would have been pretty easy to figure out, since she lived alone, what fingerprints were hers on her toothbrush, on a doorknob, on her steering wheel, something, you know? Yeah. Um, they couldn't have wiped away all her fingerprints. Um, so I just, that all seemed really frustrating to me. Uh, but... When you look into the original detectives that worked on the case, there are some definitely some sketchy stuff in there um, that has been said about them. Whether or not it's true, I don't know. Um, I do know one of them had a notorious cold case. A little six-year-old girl uh, was found deceased on his family's farm. Um and, you know, it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like the smart thing to do if you were the culprit to leave that person or that child on your family's farm. But it also seems like it seemed really odd. 
Um, mm. And that wasn't the only instance where people had come out and um, accused him of, of some stuff regarding children. And this was one of the investigators? This was one of the investigators, yeah. I don't want to name him, uh, just to, you know. What's his he's name? He's no longer living, we but he answers. never, you know, <laughs> had any charges against him. It's just yeah. all kind of like a lot of drama around this case. Now, I know it sounds ridiculous that you, um, there could be a theory out there that she is now, or she was recruited to be a spy, but, ah, yeah, no, even that's not, like, why would you even wipe the fingerprints down if you're taking somebody to be a spy? Yeah, it's, it's, it's this one's right. definitely feels well, like, like, uh, foul play to me. Sounds, it almost feels like a, uh, a military conspiracy that you're, uh, wrapping yourself in here, uh, you need to Nancy. Get out. get out, Nancy. Careful. I know, right? Uh, I I remember telling my parents about this case. My dad was like, mm, I don't feel comfortable with this, that you're <laughs> yeah. digging into this. Uh, it just doesn't sound like she became a spy. And from those that I've talked to that are former FBI, they said that that's one of the most sloppy ways to make someone disappear. They could e- have easily just said, she got in a car accident and, you know, kind of faked her own death that way or something Yeah. Um, to where it wouldn't have been so, I don't know, suspicious. Confusing. Yeah, suspicious, too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, even the, the original um, Navy criminal investigator um, who worked on her case transferred to, it was like a completely different branch of the government. He transferred after a month on the case and so i was like what i i don't know who knows if that has anything to do with anything it's just another one of those head scratch moments well i think they're all guilty nancy and what's your real name so i go by mel uh most people that you know um and so people people go uh call me nap time or call me nancy online but you you know, I've been called worse uh, than nap time. So <laughs> fair. That's fair. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's whatever. It's You can call me Mel. You can, yeah, Nancy, whatever works. I'm obsessed with this Elaine case, by the way. I'm reading this now. I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of, uh, kind of, kind of disappointed that we have to wrap up because we should do a follow up or something. This is, yeah, it's a yes, good case. I would this love that. Fair. Yeah. Oh, I love that case. I was like, damn it. Why did I choose that as my first episode? Cause you know, <laughs> like as a podcast, you're like, Oh, that's like your worst, you know, and you just slowly get better over time. I definitely want to do a follow up on her case. Yeah. yeah this cool. Is, this is incredible. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah. I really oh. appreciate it. Yeah. Do you want to run down some statistics for, uh, for two? Her name was two T cam tran. And she was 24 years old. Um, she lived with her brother and his family in Lanham, Maryland. And she was attending the University of Maryland in Baltimore County. Um, and she was last seen on Monday, November 26, 1990. Uh, she finished her class at the Fine Arts Building around 6.45 and was last seen around 8.30 in the University Center in the game room. Um, from said that she was in good spirits and then she was never seen again. Her car was still in the parking lot. Um, she's four foot nine inches tall, 90 pounds, um, shoulder length, curly brown hair. 
uh, and was wearing a blouse, jeans, sneakers, and like a scalloped pearl necklace with little tiny, like nine blue stones in the necklace. Um, so if anyone has any information, um, you could call UMBC police at 410-455-3136. Okay, great. Beautiful. And how do people access your blog and your work and and your podcast? I am a naptime Nancy uh, podcast is on iTunes, Spotify, any, you know, most, if not all listening apps, um, I just started a Patreon page, nice. um, so I have little mini episodes I call Power Naps, um, <laughs> yes. and then you can catch me on Twitter at NaptimeNancyDRW, and my blog um, is NaptimeNancyDRW.wordpress.com. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.